Hello and a big welcome to Audio News from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I'm Peter Goodwin with a special edition of the programme devoted to 60 years of cradle-to-grave medical care in the UK free to everybody at the time of need. A fine idea, you may say, but has it worked? How is it set up? Is it truly a success? Will it continue? I hope to answer some of these questions by hearing from the experts, like historian Virginia Berridge. She's been telling me how the Second World War was a catalyst that helped this revolution in medical care come into being. Well, I think there'd been a gradual feeling throughout the 1930s that something needed to be done about the patchwork of healthcare. So many different authorities, so many different hospitals, often very small, only catering for certain segments of the population. The whole system seemed to be very chaotic and uncoordinated. And certainly the war uh, was a huge... Um, impetus towards doing something about that. It brought into existence right at the beginning of the war uh, what was called the Emergency uh, Hospital Service, which for the first time organised hospitals on a a regional basis and tried to bring some organisation into the way hospitals were actually used and the way the population accessed them and so on. And that was brought into being because of the fear of the casualties that were were going to come about through air raids and bombing. In fact, those casualties weren't as large as was initially supposed, uh, but that was the impetus behind the the regionalisation of the hospital service. After the war, British voters were ready for a new vision, a better world, and making free medical care universally available was an important part of this. And there was a political party committed to forming a national health service, with one politician in particular with the personality and ability to make it happen, Anirin Bevan. Bevan brought in the option of nationalisation, nationalisation of the hospitals, uh, the service not located in local government but instead run by central government and tax funded and it was that I think and that alone which actually secured the support of eventually and it was really very much on a knife edge uh, of the majority of the medical profession. Virginia Berridge who chairs the London School's Department of History. But the sea change in the British healthcare system had already been a long time in the making. Way back in the early 1930s, a small group of doctors and scientists had been hard at work, consulting experts on administration, economics, logistics, training, construction, all the necessary ingredients for a future NHS. One of this group still works at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He is Jerry Morris. Well, I was a medical student there in the 1930s, so I'm one of the survivors of the generation which battled for the creation of a national health service. Now, what exactly did you and the other students in that group do? Well, we chiefly sought to study and to learn something about the problems that would be involved in setting up a national health service from the very mixed, even chaotic system, if you can call it a system, that we had in operation in the 1930s. Now, what was the chaotic system that you had in the 30s? It was presumably private medicine of some sort. There was the, the, the private medicine, there was also local authority hospitals, there were the general practitioners, so it was a very scattered system in many ways. 
And we set up a, I remember very clearly, as a medical student, we started a society for the study of the national, of a national health service. And of course we knew nothing about the technical problems, but we invited the experts, and they readily came to teach us. They were just as keen on the formation of a national, a future national health service as we were. Professor Morris was posted with the British Army in Burma, from where, at the end of the war, he heard the results of the post-war election. We were all sitting in our sitting room in the huge military hospital in Rangoon, waiting eagerly for the results of the general election which came through on the radio. And suddenly the news came through about the results of the general election. And spontaneously we burst into a tremendous roar of cheering which was quite the wrong thing to do because anything political was banned very sensibly from the army and from military but we were so eagerly waiting waiting for this and the thought passed through many of our minds that this would definitely mean the creation of a national health service that was quite clear although we couldn't imagine that Attlee was going to make what turned out to be a near-genius appointment of Nye Bevan as the Secretary of State. And looking back on the history of that, that was a remarkable appointment. And he was a remarkable man who achieved remarkable things. 98-year-old Professor Jerry Morris talking to me from his office, which is still at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And 60 years on, the National Health Service is popular among the British people, though most feel quite free to complain about it from time to time. People have always said that the National Health Service as as an ideal, as a political ideal, has retained enormous popularity. Um, But in terms of its realisation in in practical terms, then everyone feels at liberty to criticise because everyone needs health care, everyone goes to see their doctor um, and consequently... Um, feels that that they can complain, that they can have a view. I think a possible problem has been uh, the centralisation of the service, the way in which, because it's tax-funded, because it's a central government responsibility, then it's been political in a way that perhaps it wouldn't have been if it had been funded through local rates. But the downside of that would have been that it would have been a much more variable service locally and there have been attempts in particular since the 1970s with the with the RORP exercise the resource allocation working party to try and even out the way the NHS operates and we're seeing that now with the work of NICE too uh, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence trying to make treatments universally available uh, in, in a similar way across the NHS. And setting up standards for setting drugs, so not using ones that don't work. Yes, setting up standards for, for the use of drugs and so on. So uh, there are pluses and minuses for the way in which the NHS was set up. Centralisation can be a cumbersome mechanism, but it can also be a mechanism for equity, I think, poten- potentially. I think the other aspect that's been problematic is what's been called the democratic deficit in the NHS. The NHS has struggled to try and accommodate what's now called the consumer or the patient, um, and it's struggled to try and relate to its local dimension. Having lost that local government connection, um, it's often been quite distant from local communities as well as local individual patients. 
Professor Virginia Berridge and the NHS compares favourably on a global basis. Canada, for example, has an excellent but different approach to providing free universal health care. They use insurance-based medicine. And in a much less resource-rich setting, Cuba's health service is also highly regarded. The NHS, though, is unique, according to Nick Mays, Chair of Health Policy at the London School. I think one of the things that distinguishes health policy and the focus on the NHS in in Britain is the high level of, of political interest and the high level of public attention and media attention that the health service gets. Although health policy and the way the health system is performing is a high-profile issue in many countries, I think that the focus on the NHS in Britain is probably unique. The the level of, of detailed attention. And obviously, from some points of view, this is, this is a great thing. Um, it provides um, uh, wonderful news stories. It, in a sense, keeps the players in the system honest. It keeps the professionals on their toes. But also, it, it leads to a lot of dysfunctional activity, a lot of scaremongering, a lot of um, really big stories politically blown up out of small numbers of cases, which turn out perhaps not to be quite as portrayed. And we've, we've seen that in a number of general election campaigns where individuals have been used actually by political parties. So it's a mixed picture. I think by and large I'd be happy to be in a system which is under scrutiny, but I know I know that it's an uncomfortable place. And I think that that means that it's much easier um, when people look into Britain from outside to see the problems in the system here. So it's very, very easy for an overseas person who's a bit sceptical about a tax-funded public health system to get ammunition and material because it's it's coming out every day. By and large the British people are fond of the system and approve of it. It is and it's a, it's a bit of a paradox isn't it? When you ask people what do they value most in Britain one of the things people will talk about is the NHS and certainly people who go overseas and come back will talk about the health system although they might make comments that it's perhaps a bit scruffy and it isn't as glitzy as some health systems are that they visited. Um, but if you then ask them how well the health system's performing, they generally have a more pessimistic view than either the experts or people who've used the system. So we have this this continuing paradox. Uh, and I think it's partly to do with the way that we have organised the system. I think it's inevitable in tax-funded systems that a lot of the accountability and the debate really is drawn back into the national parliament and therefore it's uh, it's highly amplified. So we hear the 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 slightest problem at the periphery becomes, I think, to some degree exaggerated uh, at the centre. Nick Mays. Liked it may be, but how effective is the NHS at healing the sick? Nick Black has been looking at medical outcomes. His team measures how effective doctors and medical care teams are. When I met up with him, I was surprised to learn that we actually don't usually measure the outcomes of medical care. Most members of the public assume that those providing health care, the doctors, the nurses, the managers, know something about what the outcome is. And it usually does come as a shock to find that we don't routinely do that. So, for instance, we only really know in terms of hospital care whether a patient leaves dead or alive. We have very little information about how much benefit they've got from their treatment, how much less pain they're in, how much better they can walk, how much better the whatever the symptoms were that they went in there for have improved. Now, the paradox is, of course, you go and see the doctor because you're ill. The doctor is an expert, gives you treatment. If the treatment works, the doctor doesn't see you again. 
Well, there is, that, that's the irony. And all, rather, that's probably the assumption that doctors make, is that if a patient doesn't come back, then they must be better. Of course, it could be um, a number of other things. It could be they've died in extremists. That's, that's unusual. Um, but it may be that, after all, if you, if you have not got benefit and satisfaction from a service, be it any type of service, not just healthcare, you may well not go back to that same person. You may go to somebody else. Now, you are obviously disturbed about this because you want to know what the outcomes are because you here at the London School care about the health system that you're working within. So what have you been doing to find out about outcomes? Well, the key person in all of this, and I'd first of all say that probably whilst we're interested as researchers in understanding more to improve care, the people who are most interested are patients, and then secondly the clinicians, because most clinicians are actually very interested in learning about the outcomes, even though they haven't had that information. So what we have been doing here at the London School has been developing methods for routinely measuring outcomes uh, but by asking patients, not by asking doctors, because the last person you go to ask on the benefits and the outcome of some process uh, would be the person who's delivered it, because clearly they have a, even the best will in the world, they have a bias towards seeing the better. Now that we're celebrating 60 years of the National Health Service here in Great Britain, what have you discovered about these outcomes? Well, a number of things. Um, I suppose the first thing is that often the outcomes are not as good as doctors and nurses suppose and the textbooks suggest. That's largely because these things have never been routinely measured so that um, very often uh, doctors will either not see patients after their treatment or if they do it's very cursory and there is no systematic, rigorous way of trying to measure just how much benefit they've got. Do you think then that the National Health Service in Great Britain is a good example, does have many of the nuts and bolts in process, in, in place, and in fact could deliver uh, fantastic outcomes with a little tweaking? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, because the, the, the key thing, as everybody knows, with, with the British NHS and other national health services in other countries modelled on it, is the central importance of primary care. Um, most, most of the problems that arise in high-income countries, particularly in terms of cost, arise because of the lack of a good, strong primary care system. Uh, and that, that is the key, the key element of providing high-quality care. Nick Black, Professor of Health Services Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. But what about the next 60 years? Although Jerry Morris was working as a doctor more than a decade before the National Health Service began, he's equally enthusiastic about what it can do in the next 60 years. And there are challenges. The first thing I'd like to talk about are the very important changes there's going to be in the next 60 years. And the first change that I would like to refer to is in terms of the ageing of the population. That the most rapidly growing section of the population today are the 85 years plus. And for the first time in human history, we're going to have a large, what I call ancient population, 85 years plus. The centenarians are not going to be very special odd bods, but a fairly common feature. And with regard to old people in general, the National Health Service, I would say, has been moderately successful. There's a lot of evidence of ageism, of younger people getting preferential 
treatment. And of course, old people need a lot of care and a lot of treatment. And they need social help, social care, which at present, shall we say, is by no means adequate in many places. Isn't this, however, because you simply can't give cradle-to-grave service at an affordable cost? Is perhaps this dream of delivering free health care to all, irrespective of their ability to pay, just a dream? Well, it depends on what your views of society are and how society should devote its resources. This becomes a, a philosophical, political question, which we have we're all entitled to our views. I'm very old-fashioned. I believe in taxation. You see, I mean, I don't know anything more fair than the income tax and everybody paying their share. And Professor Morris has plenty more to say. For one thing, he's both concerned and excited about the advance of medical science. Another great challenge which must be mentioned is the scientific explosion which, which we're entitled to talk about because we can, we're talking about the next 60 years and it, it, it may be evident in 10 years' time, unlikely, 20 years' time, more likely, 30 years' time. Well, the tremendous changes that are going to be from the knowledge of genetics which we are now achieving, where it's going to be possible to know the genetic composition of each individual and how each individual can genetically adapt to his environment and mode of life and what his liabilities to disease are. If his liability to trouble with his cholesterol level or his liability to trouble with his blood pressure level, we'll be able to tell that and you can focus on that. And of course, that's going to require a health service and relations between doctors and patients even closer than we've already got. But amid the very daunting prospect of trying to give cradle-to-grave health care to everybody in the world, do you despair or do you think it is possible? I don't think it is possible. I'm sure it is possible. <laughs> Jerry Morris of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine with a visionary outlook that's inspiration for many. But that's all from this special edition of Audio News. So from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye and happy birthday, NHS.